Welcome to the STEC, the Public Procurement Podcast. Today we'll be talking about the Green Deal and public procurement. Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestech. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hi, Willem. Good, uh, good afternoon. How are yeah, you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm all good. I'm excited to talk about the Green Deal, public procurement, all this type of stuff. But uh, maybe you could guide our listeners through some of the uh, thoughts that we had for today's episode. Sure. So our menu for today is as the uh, main meal. So the substance, the main substantial part, we want to discuss uh, the issues associated with the Green Deal and how it impacts the public procurement and our thoughts on this matters. And then there's our dessert, our happy fun time. We'll be talking a little bit about life uh, as an academic after the COVID-19. So touching upon some of the issues of Green Deal, actually, in terms of our travel, we'll be still going for research stays and conferences, etc., etc. So that's 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 what the main idea for today to set us on this as 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 we tend to always go back to the idea that we did at least in our minds virtually open a restaurant. I think that today is particularly interesting to discuss issue of vegetarian restaurants and vegan meals. Oh, no, how that? How that? Or is it is it highly political? <laughs> no, it's not. Highly, I actually really enjoy vegetarian food. Yeah. Food. I had to be. I have to be honest. I was one of those type of guys that had to be convinced a little bit. But mm-hmm. I mean, there's some amazing stuff going around. I mean, like you can always wake me up for like a vegetarian Indian curry or something like that's spectacular. There is there is some really really good vegetarian and vegan food i think that this is also in context of, of our further conversation later on in context of um some of the conferences and conference dinners and many universities actually take upon themselves to also enforce this environmentally friendly approach and when they organize they uh, dif- different um seminars and so on, you got catering that is vegetarian or vegan. And yep. I have been over the last years introduced to some amazing food. So Actually, that's like you, it's funny you should say that because I never really thought about it, but that's also the standard at Utrecht University where you the, 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 the status quo is vegetarian and vegan. Yeah. If you want meat, you, I have to click the meat option on the order form for, for uh-huh. seminars and conferences, which I think is yeah. great. It's, it works well. I think so. Okay, but before we sort of go to our... Um, preferences food wise and travel wise let's let's talk some procurement so the green deal um how about willem you set us set us uh on the right course yeah so i think um obviously that's been all the talk since last uh, december on the the 11th of december in 2019 the european commission kind of um, set out their their green targets or objectives um, for for the coming years in in the European Green Deal, and and like similar to to the American uh, version of that, which perhaps is a bit more ambitious, but uh, let's not debate that uh, in this episode. I think there's also um, 
legal implications and, uh, and more in particular, uh, public procurement law implications, um, which I thought would be fun to discuss today. Um, now, the, 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 the main objective is to make um, Europe the first continent to be climate neutral by 2050. And uh, perhaps not surprisingly, public procurement has been put in the, in the, in the spotlight again to, to reach those objectives. Um, so uh, my, my first thoughts when I read the, uh, the document, and perhaps um, we can just briefly uh, skim through what, uh, what it said in relation to, um, to, to procurement. Um, interestingly, the, the, the commission emphasized again uh, that buyers should make sustainable decisions and reduce the risk of greenwashing, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, uh, kind of what the commission had already been saying. But then I think, and this is what sparked my attention, the commission said, and I quote, public authorities, including the EU institutions, should lead by example and ensure, with the stress on ensure, that their procurement is green. The commission will propose further legislation and guidance on green public purchasing. Um, so I think there's two things that happen here is one, the, the, the trend-setting role of contracting authorities is emphasized yet again, and uh, more legislation is coming and more guidance, and perhaps even to ensure that public procurement is green. I think that's, uh, that's something to, to take into account, or at least to pay attention to when we start see what the Commission will actually propose in terms of legislation in the, in the months to come. Yeah, definitely. Um, just to um, also highlight how this green deal in a broader sense um, attaches a certain economical value, so to speak, to European Union. It's also this point when they're making that actually through achieving this um, climate change and, and uh, targets, um, we are to become as a region more competitive on the market through being the sustainable market, right? So on the one hand side, increasing the um, quality of life of a citizen, but at the same time become more competitive. Before we dive into more detail on that, I think that it's good to put it in context, right? So it's good to reflect a little bit on what we had until now and what changes. And just to play a devil's advocate um, in this regards, um, I would want to hear, Willem, your opinion how this is different or it's actually not to what we had in, in current uh, state um, binding us one way or another. And that was the um, strategy for Europe 2020, which was envisioning, uh, sorry, I cannot speak today for whatever reason, envisioning the um, sort of progression, innovation, et cetera, et cetera. Because in, cer in certain way, the, you know, there the could, the could be a line of arguing that this is just something that re uh, replaces this. And actually, it has the same legal value, meaning that it's, 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 it's a strategy, but actually there is not really a legally binding uh, obligation or mandate there. Yeah, it's a good, uh, good question, I think. Um... I think it's partially the same. I think mm. in terms of objectives, there's a lot of the same. Uh, I mean, it's obviously very green and it takes one further step. And there's been a lot of debate about if it's green enough mm. uh, in terms of the role of public procurement. 
um, I think so far we don't see any changes, right? We're still shooting at a moving target. We haven't seen any um, concrete changes in the law, obviously. Uh, I think that would also be quite ambitious to already expect yeah, that by now. For sure. um, but we still see that strong policy push of the European Commission, which I think is interesting, uh, to use public procurement. Uh, so even though it might not be set in stone in the law, the commission has always been at the forefront of stimulating contracting authorities on the national level to include s- secondary or horizontal objectives in their procurements. Um, would you say? Would you say that with this green deal, we have more emphasis on green versus uh, other aspects of sustainable development in comparison with Europe 2020? Because Europe 2020 was strongly emphasizing the social, the environment, but also quite heavily, I would say, innovation. When my my impression with the Green Deal is that we actually, um, we refer, of course, to innovation, competitiveness given through innovation and this uh, notion of not leaving anyone behind. So this sort of social inclusion, social justice, but it seems that it's quite, quite strong push for focusing on environment. I think if you read the whole whole Green Deal, I think what you'll see is um, uh, it it is quite balanced. But what's Mm -hmm. interesting, when we then see, look at the sections on public procurement, it's very much focused on green. It's very green. It's not this whole social, uh, the balance that I think is important in terms of sustainable development. You know, you you, you take all aspects into account. Um, But... Perhaps this can actually be solved by contracting authorities on the national level when they set up their procurements because they're going to be the ones that have to implement it anyway. And they would then have to balance all of these objectives in in their purchasing strategy. Um, And then we could still come up with a suitable balance between social, economic and ecological, right? So I I agree with you, actually, that the focus is very much on green uh, in light of climate change. Yeah, um, but but there is a, perhaps a certain disbalance there, or at least it's a point of attention. Attention, I think. Yeah, well, I think that there is something also to be said that historically we in Europe tend to focus more on promoting environmental aspects than social. And this is actually quite interesting to discuss with you because I know we had these chats before that in the Netherlands, the social dimension is also quite strongly emphasized. The labor issues also in Denmark are quite strongly emphasized. But it seems that on EU level, this, this um, and I wonder if it, again, does not strive from this assumption of, of, of a fear that, you know, social consideration very quickly can come across as protectionism mechanism and favoring um, law. Local, local supplier. So if that there is something uh, there, um, but let's 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 just set us up. So where we are today in context of regulatory system, um, when we're talking about environmental, when we're talking about sustainable procurement, are we obliged to procure that way? Um, what you what you think, Lillian? It's a tough question because <laughs> you everyone can't see you smile right now, but you're like. <laughs> I'll put the ball in front of the goal and I'll let him shoot. And then actually I'll catch the ball right when he's finished talking. So everyone prepare yourself. Marta is about to, to go off. No, no, um, I'm okay. On some I'm amazing okay. chat, I'm sure. Um, I, let's, let's maybe cover the groundwork. I think on which sure. we probably both agree. If we don't, please correct me. Yeah. I think the general system in EU public procurement law, in turn, when we talk about sustainability, has always focused on possibilities. And what I mean by that, it's focused on allowing contracting authorities to include sustainability objectives 
uh, in their procurements to not only fulfill their initial needs, but to also achieve sustainability goals, right? Tables with FSC labels, or uh, perhaps if we think, think social, long-term unemployed that help construct roads, right? Those are probably the most classic examples. Now, the, the last time we saw that was mostly in 2014 when we had the revamp of the directives. I think that's when we saw a legislative milestone in terms of the possibilities, right? You guys wrote a great book on life cycle costing. Um, that's something that is, uh, I think, uh, something we'll see more of in the future. But the focus was on possibilities and not in general, and that's, I stress in general, on obligations to where, they, where contracting authorities had to do it. They always had the discretion on the national level to decide based on their purchasing strategy, administrative means, et cetera, et cetera, to do it. Now, there's been some scholarship of which you've contributed and I've contributed myself as well, uh, in which uh, we explored the actual, well, we looked at the directives and also primary law to see, well, actually, it's, fo it's a focus on possibilities, but aren't there also a couple of obligations there? Um, and that's where discussions on Article 11 of the treaty come in, of the, of the working treaty, Article 69, Section 3, Article 18, 2 uh, come up, and also provisions on the national level. So Article 1.4, Section 2 of the Dutch Public Procurement Act obliges contracting authorities to procure as much um, uh, societal value, whatever that may be, for uh, their public uh, expenditure. Um, and uh, before I let go of the ball <laughs> and we start, you can start shooting, I, I, my general impression of those provisions are, I think because it hasn't been a systemic focus, they're, they're inherently flawed. So they're either unclear, they're not focused towards the, um, the right actors, so say contracting authorities, so there might be obligations for the member states, or that, like I said, they're unclear, or they, they still leave a bit of discretion. And that varies between these provisions. So it's, it's not a one size fits all. But I think because of that, and perhaps because enforcement is difficult uh, along the, 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 the supply chain, so there's all sorts of things that you can come up with, um, they're, they're flawed, uh, which means that even though we have some obligations, I don't think they actually work. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I, I, I'm waiting anxiously. Uh, <laughs> no, no. I think I think that we absolutely agree on that. Oh, no, there is no doubt about that. No. But let me just throw in some of the thoughts that I think that I feel quite strongly about emphasizing. And some of them is um, just uh, because I could go on a rant for a good half an hour about it, and we don't have time for it. But I just want to point out here that the question hall about availability, the possibility or even obligation of these issues within European public procurements and by European public procurements, I mean the ones that are above the threshold, um, often the criticism comes across saying, well, this is not objective of procurement. This is something, deal with it with other areas of law or in a very limited manner, they are actually, or they should be allowed. We can see that over the last two decades, probably there have been certain shift in approach of European Code of Justice in that, um, with the Lisbon Treaty also opening and having and this understanding of, of, of European Union being something more 
than just solely the economic market. And I think that this is for me and always been in my work a very important element because I think also when we understanding value for money within procurement contracts, I always say that it's, I'm, I'm, I think that we just need to understand it broader. And the big starting point in all this conversation is that government buying is not the same as private company buying. And that just to set the conversation I think to point it out where I'm standing with when I'm looking at those things. And I very much agree with you that even if there are certain provisions, Article 11 of the treaty is one of them that uses a language that could suggest that there is an obligation, most presumably, which uses the language that shall should consider uh, shall consider environmental policies in whatever the European Union is is doing and uh, issuing. I think that um, the big issue of all these provisions is, uh, as you mentioned, the 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 the, the general how generally it is written. So how we actually can enforce them, and also what we can see is the way how um, all these elements are actually being used in procurement. They are using used to sort of tick the boxes, but if you start talking to contracting authorities, it's not ever, at least I never heard about a case in which someone would terminate the contract because the sustainability clauses within procurement have not been uh, obeyed to. You always renegotiate, you always, so to speak, slap the suppliers on hands. But, but, and I think that that's where the core issue uh, lies. The only one um, that is truly, I think, undeniably obligatory provision within the classic directive that we're looking at is um, Article 69.3, which is on abnormally low tenders, which points out that if you're in a breach of the sustainable laws that we generally can refer to, which are included in the procurement principles in Article 18.3, to uh, the contracting authority is obliged to exclude you from procurement process if um, your offer is abnormally low due to those breaches and you cannot anyhow argument um, convincingly on it, right? Um, I think and then, the difficulty yeah. still is with that. So I, I agree that's probably the clearest one. Yeah. But what I still, at least what I see in, in, in Dutch practice as well is it's really a difficult provision to work with because one, you have to prove that it's an abnormally low bid, which is already difficult without any of the sustainability stuff. And then two, you have to prove that it's actually an abnormally low bid because of the violations. Specific. Specific. So say, to give an example, uh, say child labor was used in the production process of of work clothes for a a municipal uh, waste collection agency it would be very hard to do both things to one say it's, it's an abnormally low, low bid and it's caused by simply the fact that child labor was used right so i think even though it's it's a that's one of these great black letters of law but mm. i don't actually i mean i i wouldn't know how to i mean i can think of ways to do it but the question is would contracting authorities have the time and resources or means yeah it's to a, do it and I think that you, you're hitting the nail here um, and a lot of the conversations. Um, so I think that you generally deal with two types of contract, contracting authorities, right? The ones that ask you, do I really have to? And those are the ones that in principle kind of don't want to dive into any of those issues. And the ones that um, probably have enough political push and strategical sort of push uh, from the management of the organization to say, yeah, we really want to, but how we actually do that. And that's 
in the first and in the second scenario, actually, all of it is about resources, right? Resources and capacities. Uh, how are you as a contracting authority going to, to follow up um, and actually assess those, uh, those elements? So, yeah, we generally have um, this, uh, this provisions. Article 18.2 is particularly interested because it's, I, I wrote um, extensively at this point on this, which is in a part on, on procurement principles. So it questions sort of really the legal value of, 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 of that provision. Um, and we even actually had a very recent case um, from 2018 on Tim SPA um, sort of for the first time touching, not indirectly because they are actually discussing specifically this provision, um, it's, it's, it's about exclusions um, up there, but, but, but sort of brings in, and I really look forward to seeing more of this article being brought into the case law to see what the court will say yeah. on this. But then how Green Deal changes anything in, 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 in this regards, what we can get out of it, how the paradigm, do, we, do you think that we're dealing with a certain paradigm shift? Well, I was bold enough to put it in an article, but this might come back to bite me. <laughs> we need to tricky. live boldly, right? We need to, yeah, I mean, I think, the, and also perhaps it's because I think the EU can do more in terms of legislative action, but we, we can come back to that. But um, I think what's, what's interesting, so the, uh, I, I spoke about that ensure that they mentioned, so the, to ensure that public authorities pr- procure green. And then the, uh, more recently, the European Green Deal Investment Plan came out, and that really got me excited. Well, mm-hmm. a bit nerdy excited, obviously, because <laughs> I haven't convinced my wife that this is something to get excited about. But um, it basically says, and I quote again, the Commission will propose minimum mandatory green criteria or targets for public procurements in sectoral initiatives, EU funding, or product-specific legislation. Such minimum criteria will de facto set a common definition of what a green purchase is. And then the commission refers to, to all of these supporting efforts. But it's, it's quite a big thing for the commission to say, we will propose minimum mandatory green criteria and targets, particularly because it tried to do that already in the clean vehicles for, for yeah the clean vehicles where it actually implemented it but also yeah. it proposed it in the in the uh, the green paper prior to the new um, new directives or I shouldn't say new but the 2014 directives when it tried to at least inquire from the member states should we regulate what to buy and not just go about how to buy things at, at the national level at the time that was struck down i mean there wasn't there was a couple, there were a couple of positive responses from civil society not um, probably not surprisingly but to say this in this document, at least it's, I wouldn't say that, obviously we don't have a paradigm shift yet. There's still a lot mm. of stuff to be done, but um, the, the, the commission at least is, it seems willing to, to push further than the current system that we have in public procurement. Yeah. Well, I think there is also something to be said. Um, whatever I speak with contracting authorities, particularly those that are very skeptical and don't want to touch any of those things, and they say, oh, it's policy, we don't have to do it. Um, I always try to convince them that it's really good to start and start small to get acquainted with this uh, good practices and how you can actually do it uh, in compliance with procurement law because we systematically move from really questioning if that's possible at all to right now, you know, being in this stage, I think with the new, with the 2014 directives, 
really strongly promoted and we and, and we never saw as many mentions of environmental social aspects in the directive before with um, the um, the, the newest documentation coming from and communication coming from the uh, commission really sort of it seems if we if I would to predict is that we're moving towards reaching at some point really the element in which we will have some of those um, provisions mandatory truly mandatory regulating and of course up here is the balance between on the one hand side I'm guessing a lot of member states are saying subsidiarity let us do it our way how we want to do it but I do think that is something to be said that um, doing it on the European level creates a certain European standard. And that European standard would feed to this idea of us being a sustainable market. And by being sustainable market, that will be sort of our branding for EU and our competitive advantage. And at the same time, I think that that also feeds to this notion that um, the equal treatment and non-discrimination is much more clear. It, 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 it rid, so to speak, gets rid of this uh, risk of trying to argue, oh, you're using these environmental criteria or standards to discriminate against foreign suppliers. I think that there is something to be said there. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I totally agree. If only the argument of impact, right? So perhaps... You could say, yeah, maybe it's not, it, we didn't do it this way and use, you could use legal basis, you could use the competence of the internal market. You get very lawyery about it, but yeah. ultimately you could also say, well, the, 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 the challenge of climate change is, is so massive and public procurement is in the right spot. If we can actually say that it's the most effective tool to tackle it, then a European-wide approach would actually be far more effective than national, um, than national approaches or could be far more effective than that. Um, I, I mean, I do see issues with this, uh, this EU approach, um, and, and mostly is what would be the role of the different actors then, right? Yeah. Uh, mm. is, w the Netherlands is, is not shy of climate litigation, probably mm -hmm. one of the most successful cases. Absolutely, yeah. Agenda. And the question is, how does this work then? Um, so just when I play this tape in my head, I think, okay, well, it's, it would be very effective to have obligations, but um, obligations are only worth our while, perhaps other than sociological effects, if we would introduce them, um, where they're actually enforceable in court. So yes. competitors would be able to claim, well, you didn't actually, your procurement wasn't, uh, sustainable enough. Green enough. Yeah. Or green yeah, enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And but that actually takes chips away a lot of discretion that contracting authorities have. That's one. That's true. Perhaps that's not an issue. Two, what is sustainable enough? And are courts then able yeah. to, to judge it, right? Well, that's the one thing. But I think that another element specifically also when we're talking about environmental aspects and, and external um, external. Um, measures or external elements within as assessing, you know, let's say life cycle, uh, life cycle costing, right? And all these elements, it becomes extremely technical, methodological. And some of our colleagues also who would criticize sort of the sustainability in procurement in the first place, they will say, well, it costs a lot and also how effective it is. Do we actually have a measures to um, ensure that actually we achieved what we intended to. And I think that that's what we're still lacking. The methodology is not 
there yet. Though at the same time, when I speak with um, some of the private companies within private procurements, when some of those things work very well, they're saying it is. But contracting authorities are risk averse and they're not willing to take uh, a certain steps to, to, to use what is available on the market one way or another. So, so I think that we are for sure in the stage where possibilities are there and the many, many, many contracting authorities do a fantastic job of really trying to, to um, incorporate them. Where I lack is really a follow-up. So we're moving right now to contractual uh, stage, contract management, um, this sort of auditing of these elements, uh, because that becomes very problematic, you know, to, to, to sort of um, tease you a bit, talking about sustainable coffee, right? Let's say we procured sustainable coffee, and that was very important uh, for us, ethical trade coffee. And now I envision, I'm not, I like coffee, but I don't think that I could probably taste in a cup of coffee if it's coming from the sustainable sources or not. So in what point, and let's say that you got, you know, creative supplier that mid through contract implementation phase decides, oh, I can actually save because I can just supply them with, with just, you know, regular coffee. Um, if you not check, like you, you need to, if you, if you say A, you need to say B, you need to somehow introduce also checks and balances later on to really ensure that you're getting what you procured and at the same time to ensure that this uh, competitive element has been upheld, right? But at that, I mean that the standard that you procured under competitive environment is still delivered later on. Yeah, uh, uh, great point, actually. It, it's something that also surprised me when I did um, a research visit during my PhD at George Washington University is where they have these two Bibles, right? Formation of, pub, of, of government contracts. Yeah, um, and they've also got administration of government contracts, Absolutely. and they're just as thick, right? And I find that, or at least I I do it myself, is I mostly focus on the formation part, uh, whereas perhaps the most benefits that we can actually achieve are in the in the administration, right? The contract phase or. Well, I think that those, those two are super connected, right? Because if we're not doing anything in a contract management phase, then all these elements that we're discussing and we are so passionate about becomes just checking box exercise and this sort of version of greenwashing. It's like, yeah, yeah, we're doing all of that, but are we really? Um, so, so it becomes uh, a certain fake plaque that you, that you uh, point towards, which doesn't have that much value, right? And but it's just, yeah. yeah, sorry, this is go for it. Well. <laughs> so, we're actually, we haven't been too bad, actually. I think when we have a glass of wine in our hands, it's actually worse than, than how polite we are at the moment. But um, I think what's, um, uh, but this is one thing that, one final thing that I wanted to say about this, uh, even though there's more to discuss, but I think this gives like a, I think a good overview, at least the discussions that we're supposed to have in the next couple of years, is also like the, the Dutch government has responded to these plans and they, they, they're going for the targets. Basically, they're saying, well, um, and these are my own words, um, in response to the Circular Economy Action Plan, they also res respond to these minimum criteria and targets that could be set at the EU level. And basically, they say, well, we're in favor of EU-wide targets, but not in favor of uh, criteria or further legislation because, um, uh, and I think the argument was if you regulate too much, it, it hinders innovation. Um, and 
I think same with these targets. I mean, there's a lot to be said about what option is better, right? And I don't think we can touch upon that today. But mm. I think also with targets, this whole auditing and monitoring aspect is of vital importance because targets can become political uh, instruments very quickly if there's no strict monitoring and no clear definitions about what you're actually monitoring. Right? Yeah, and what it actually what fulfills that target, right? Yeah. How is that valuable? Yeah, just to add to 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 finish that part of a general um, element, I think also a lot has been so. This is interesting what you're saying about innovation because I heard that comment before, and I think that. Okay, I'm trying to structure my thought not to take another 15 minutes. Are you getting passionate? Is this I'm getting very passionate. <laughs> I think so. One thing to say is that I think it also is understandable the commission starts to go this way because they invested quite a lot in uh, this collaborative approach um, about establishing green uh, award criteria in different sectors, right? They invested and they got stakeholders from different member states, and we have. Um, award criteria developed for computers, for light bulbs, light systems, all these different things that you guys can find. Um, whoever is is actually listening to us on the on the commission's Those website. Three people. Yes, exactly. yes, your your wife, mine, and my mom maybe. <laughs> my dad generally listens, yes. but I don't know if the English is going to put him off. But the, the Dutch Let's episodes see. he's always listened to, but. If, if you're listening, hi, dad. Yeah. There you go. Um, so I think that's a natural progression that they're saying, okay, we need to take it somewhere. And then the second point that I would want to make is to say, I'm not entirely buying this thing about limiting innovation because I think we already right now can see so many contracting authorities really pushing the agenda, really trying to do something great. Where I see potential for making more mandatory requirements is to actually get on board those member states that sort of, or the contracting authorities that really don't want to touch it. And it's not about the super complicated one, but really consider recyclable, let's say, materials or, or things like that. And the third point, and I promise that's the last one, is just because you mentioned Netherlands. In context of, 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 of Denmark, we have guidance on social um, clauses in procurement, actually. And it also establishing this um, obligation on public contractors to consider these social clauses on education and internship agreements in procurement in accordance with this principle that we refer to as follow or explain. And this is also an interesting thing. I don't know if that's in Netherlands similar, but up here it's, it's obligation but it's one of those obligations that does not really have a legal consequence. I spoke with many practitioners and they say it's not really something that Again, you terminate contract, or you—it's it, not really uh, emphasized to that point. Um, yeah, so we we actually—it's—it's. It, I think it's it's relatively similar. We call it comply or explain. I think it's yeah. relatively the same. So it's probably the same. Um, and but it's mostly related yeah, to uh, this provision that I mentioned briefly. I wrote an article about this with Rika Baumann, a colleague of mine in Public Procurement Law Review, and basically our conclusion is is even though, um, yeah. The, the provision is there. Also, we, we, we see the same thing with, with clustering of contracts. So we mm -hmm. also have to, to comply or explain in the Netherlands. Um, I won't go too deep into that, but all I could say is very often these things become a, a great way to start the conversation in a contracting authority, but if they're actually helpful as a competitor to use before the courts, not really. But yes. maybe that's a good... Yeah. Uh, Perhaps we've already found three or four episodes that we should yeah. do after this, but I've been <laughs> writing sure. them down. 
Good, good. Um, okay, let's. I think that let's let's wrap it up when it comes to our main topic, um, our main course uh, for today. As you mentioned, there's so much more to talk about, um, but we need to we need to somehow have in mind um, some sort of structure and timeline. Um, so let's talk. Let's let's bring us to our happy fun times, our dessert, <laughs> and that's um, we we sort of I guess tying our previous episodes with uh, what we're doing today, a little bit of everything, and that is to, to reflect on academic life after COVID-19 in terms of, of, of travel, in terms of how our job will change. And I guess that's also indirectly touching upon what we're discussing today, which is a little bit of climate change and pro-environmental elements, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think it also like it might put a stick in the whole idea of this uh, podcast because we said we're going to make a podcast that has to go about the or like the, the setup is the conversations that you have after the conferences. Well, <laughs> if, if we only do online conferences, you won't have those chats afterwards anymore no. unless you like pour yourself a glass of wine. But even though I've done these drinks at Friday nights with friends and with colleagues, they're not the same. So yeah, that's true. Um, it's a tricky, I think some things will change, or at least what I'm noticing personally, it's, um, I did a webinar on podcasting in science. There's some advantages to it, right? There's a lot of internationals that can join. There's no travel costs. There's, it, it's great for a quality of researchers, right? Some might have a lot of means to travel, others don't. And if you can just log in from your home, that's totally equal. It absolutely democratizes sort of the access to those conferences. If we have in mind, let, let, let's just for the sake of the conversation, assume that actually you don't need to pay to participate in the conference. Your cost is of travel. Um, then in that sense, if you can just log on to webinar um, on different, different setups, then that really doubles or triples maybe even your participation um, amounts, right? Sort of numbers. Yeah, for sure. So you might reach people that you would, ne- would have never reached before as an academic. So the debate <laughs> might also be richer. Absolutely. And at the same time, that can also tick some of those points that in academia, our bosses are very happy about, which is you get a, a larger dissemination of, of your research, right? M- bigger societal impact, hopefully, if you suddenly have... Uh, access to to much wider audience. Yeah, so those are, I think, some of the benefits that I see. It's also in terms of cost to organize them. It's, it's relatively inexpensive. That's true. It's less tasty and less fun, perhaps. But like, uh, it, it it does. I mean, you basically. I mean, whether you do it through Zoom or Teams or whatever application you use, like it's it, uh, it the the hurdles I think are a lot lower. But the question I think I do have. Uh, it's two things. It's one, if the debate is still as um, as vivid uh, as when you see each other. So some mm-hmm. conferences, I feel like uh, I leave and I thought it was useless because I felt like people were presenting their paper and nothing more. And I read the paper already and then, you know, I could ask a couple of questions, but, you know, it's, it doesn't add much. So, but that says something yeah. more about the structure of a conference rather than anything anything else. Um, and I promised you two things. I've forgotten the second one. So maybe you can bump into the... Well, I can add the second, and that is relationship, building the relationship. Exactly. That was it. Yes. There you go. I just read it. You were looking me in the face and I forgot yeah, about it. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. No, I do think because there is something, uh, you know, there is undoubtedly many, many advantages of doing it this way. 
also for climate, um, also for, I guess, family lives. You know, people have children and families. If you suddenly go somewhere, it can actually impact also the whole structure of your family life, et cetera, et cetera. So there's many, many positives. But I do think that there are also some um, disadvantages. And, and, and yeah, and I wonder how we solve that because... The question that I would ask you is, is, is uh, which I think you answered one way or another, is you know why you really go for the conferences. And I think at this point um, in my career, why I go to those conferences after being on you know many of them, is actually to be able to see my colleagues, the ones that I know already, and meet new people. And actually, for the conference conversations that happens in between the presentation. So if that's lunch or coffee breaks or those famous now conference dinner that we sort of raised to such a height. I think we're hyping it a little bit. It's not that much fun, right? It's It's good, but yeah, anyway. It's depending on which corner you sit on the table, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, but um, because I think that there is something, there's something scary, um, I think also about being very vulnerable, very open um, through, let's say, Zoom or any type of webinar that is recorded and it's going to be somewhere in the internet to the end of your day, yeah. <laughs> right? You, you might be automatically more um, worried about what questions you want to post or what comment you want to make, because I think maybe it comes to your mind, like if, if particularly if it's area that you sort of know, but you're not 100%. If I'm going to make that comment, if I'm going to make a fool out of myself or, or, or not. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that that's, 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 that's something that has a, as a, as a disadvantage, I think, on this online. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, I think I, I would, one, I would miss them. The question is, is if that personal need is bigger than saving the world from like destruction yeah. in terms of climate change probably not but like well i would want to argue that we just should take trains rather than fly you know that, yeah, that that's sure. what we need to do to sort of decrease or fly less go to less events yeah. um but but for sure building those relationships is also huge uh, hugely beneficial for sure and i think um yeah i mean maybe it says something about how we set up normal conferences because there's not a single person that i've met so far that absolutely loves that traditional style of conferencing. Um, and maybe we can work more often with just panels, right? No, pre- you write a preset paper, but then you actually invest in the panel discussion, right? So just yeah. a panel discussion and nothing else. And then people, can, you can actually get the debate going. I mean, it takes a lot of time. That's the issue, I think. Oh, for sure. Um, I think that this just will start us maybe hopefully thinking of really redefining, redesigning conferencing. And, and, and how we do it and how we actually really think hardly about how we giving, where is the added value beyond, you know, presentation? Because if there's a presentation, I would totally see that you can record on Zoom as we do right now, your presentation, everyone can watch it if you um, don't want to write a paper or you, the paper is not ready yet. But then I think maybe the debate type of thing of what we're doing actually during this podcast, I think that you get a little bit more from it. Or at least we hope. At least we hope. Right? <laughs> good, good. I think um, I think we will wrap it up here. What do you think? For sure. Yep. Yeah. Would you like to finish finish the episode if All I right, started cool. the episode? <laughs> Not a problem. We'll see you. See you next time. Thank you for listening. And this was Bestek, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestek, the Public Procurement Podcast. 
Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? And share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com. 